All right, let's get started, jump into God's Word together. Um, we're going to be in Philippians again, chapter 3, if you want to grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one around you somewhere, starting on page 981. Um, do we have any dual citizens in here? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go there, but but I meant like of two earthly countries. Yeah? Wow. Cool. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, dual citizenship is cool. I I knew one dual citizen uh when I was growing up and it's cool. I feel like it's like being Jason Bourne. <laughs> you know, um, it means you can lean into life in two completely different communities, completely different contexts. Um, but Melissa is right. Uh, we are all dual citizens if we are Christians. Uh, we are dual citizens of, of, of heaven as well as of America if you're citizen but if you're not that's cool too um but that's cool yeah we as and as dual citizens uh, we're not we're not to escape to the mountains you know and and await christ's return that's not how we navigate our dual citizenship um we are to plant roots here we are to lean in to here uh to where we are called uh, we're to invest in the flourishing of where God has, has placed us. But dual citizenship can be a challenge. And even dual citizenship in two earthly countries. I was, I was doing a little bit of research on it. And the uh, U.S. Department of State offers this warning to dual citizens. It says, Dual nationals owe allegiance to both the United States and the foreign country. They are required to obey the laws of both countries. And either country has the right to enforce its laws. It's important to note the problems attendant to dual nationality. Claims of other countries upon U.S. dual nationals often place them in situations where their obligations to one country are in conflict with the laws of the other. And so we're presented with a challenge of being a dual citizen. What if the overlap involves tension? And of course, you know, thankfully, right now, in 2023, we as American dual citizens of heaven and America, have it pretty easy, relatively speaking, uh, when it comes to living as dual citizens of heaven and America. We have freedom of worship, unprecedented in human history. Isn't that great? And, you know, why else would so many people be desperate to escape to America? Because of that, because of that freedom, because we can worship the God that we want to worship. But, you know, I will say that it is seemingly getting more and more awkward, at least, to live a 
public, devoted life to Jesus Christ. And so it, it could be that we're, we're on our way, potentially, to, to having an, even a small taste of what first century Christians experienced. And there are many Christians today in America who are like, uh-oh, it's going to get bad. We need to seize power. But Christians have faced much worse situations in church history. And we have in front of us right here, in this passage this morning, the words from, Apost- from the Apostle Paul on, on really just how we are to navigate this dual citizenship. So let's take a look. We're going to do something a little different today. I want you to grab your Bible and stand up. All right, and you can follow along with me as we read chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. We'll pray, and then we'll sit back down. Starting verse 15 of chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul writes, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We, we just want to humble ourselves before you this morning, and we want to be touched by you. We want to be spoken to by you. We want to be influenced by you, impacted by you and your word this morning. I pray that your word would impact our hearts afresh today. Uh, tear down the walls that we've put up to you. Uh, tear down uh, the wounds that we're carrying. Lord, heal and help us to be able to live as dual citizens of America, but more importantly, heaven. And we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So today, Paul is going to uh, connect a lot of dots, which is nice. He's, he's bringing full circle um, some ideas that he's been dancing around since chapter 1. And the big idea that he introduced way back in verse 27 of chapter 1 is this. As Christians, no matter where we find ourselves, 
whether it's socially, historically, economically, or politically, we are to, in Paul's words, let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In that word there, in verse 27 of chapter 1, manner of life, it is the verb form of this word in front of us today, citizenship. He says in chapter 1, citizen yourselves worthy of the gospel. And so what he wants for these Philippians is to be able to navigate the complexities of living as a permanent citizen of the kingdom of Jesus, even while being a temporary citizen of somewhere else. Whether that's America or another country or another time, another place, this is what Christians throughout the ages have had to learn. How do we navigate this dual reality? One foot here, one foot there. The the kingdom of Jesus has been inaugurated. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. This is a hard thing to balance. So Paul gives us, in our passage this morning, three characteristics of a gospel citizen. First, gospel citizens are steadily, day by day, maturing in Christ. Second, gospel citizens influence one another for Christ. And third, gospel citizens are waiting for Christ. So first, gospel citizens are steadily maturing in Christ. Take a look back at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so twice here in verse 15, Paul uses the word for, again, for mindset, for thinking. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And this, more than joy, is the overarching theme of this letter. Right thinking, right mindset. This is what for Paul leads to joy. He uses this word ten times in this letter. And he uses it to encourage this church to unity of mind in the gospel of Jesus. Be of one mind, he said in chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then in verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. And so then he starts listing off examples. First of all, Jesus. Second of all, Timothy. Third of all, Epaphroditus. Fourth of all, me. This is the mindset. The gospel. This is it. This is what he wants them to have. A unified gospel mindset. And so now... Here we we are at almost the end of this thank you card, and he's encouraging them to circle back to this. And notice how he words this in verse 15. Let those who are mature think this way. Now, that word mature is the same word he just used in verse 12 for perfect. You know, he said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. That's the same word. 
And so what is he saying here? You know, back in verse 12, Paul was making it clear that he did not consider himself to have arrived. You know, he was not and is not fully matured and perfected in his faith in Jesus. That's what he wanted them to know. But that he is pressing on until the day when he will stand face to face with Christ. But here he uses the same word. He says, let those who are mature think like this. You know, what is he saying? He's saying, do you want to be mature Christians? If you do, recognize your immaturity. Recognize you're not perfect yet. That's Christian maturity. And then he says something interesting. He says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love this. You know, Paul just, he just encouraged them to think a certain way. Unified focus on the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of his kingdom. And the next point, the next thing he's going to say is, imitate my life. But at the same time, there in verse 15, he, in humility and in trust, he acknowledges that not everyone is going to be of the same maturity at the same time, in the same church. And not only that, it is God who needs to bring people to maturity, not Paul. And in our zeal as Christians, you know, if, if you enter a season where you're just on fire for Jesus, that's a good thing. But in that season, we can often sprint right past people who aren't quite as far along as we are. And what, what does Christian maturity look like in that case? You know, it looks like humility and trust. That, you know, humility that we aren't going to be the ones to fix people's faith. That's not our job. So humility, but also trust that God is the only one who can do that. And he will. He's faithful to do that. Does that mean in that season of, of zeal that we don't give it our all? Absolutely not. We do. We press on and we encourage those, just like Paul does here, to hold true to where God has already brought you. Do not go back, he says. You might not be as, as on fire, as mature in Christ as I am, but please don't go back. Hold true to where God has brought you. And so this is firstly what it means to live as dual citizens of America and heaven. It means that we are steadily growing. That every day, despite what the headlines say, despite all the crazy that's going on, we just grow closer to Jesus day by day by day. That's our primary job, to grow closer to him. So day by day, we are learning more and more of what it means to to prioritize Jesus, to center Jesus. And we recognize that God is the one who is overseeing this process, not just for our brothers and sisters, but for us. God is the one maturing you. He's the one who's overseeing it. But, as we'll see right in the next verse, Paul doesn't relegate 
this discipleship to, to God alone, as if we don't have a part to play, especially in the family of God. God, in his wisdom, has made human beings very sensitive to the influences of those around us. Now, why else would we have people who make a living being influencers? We, human beings, are influenced by those around us. And so Paul harnesses this for gospel purposes. And so next, gospel citizens influence one another for Christ. Look at verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so Paul says here, let me make it simple for you. Imitate me. If you're confused by my teaching, just look at my life. And this is a life he's inviting them to imitate, not a teaching. You know, elsewhere, of course, there's plenty of places where Paul wants his hearers to internalize his teachings. But here he wants them to act like he acts, to do what he does, to behave as he behaves. You know, this is... This is a true leader. You know, in the kingdom of God, do as I say, not as I do, doesn't cut it. Christian leaders need to be held to a higher standard. Their lives need to glorify Christ, not just their doctrine. And this actually was pretty comparable to the thought in the philosophies of the day. A writer named Seneca, not a Christian, but this is his recipe or prescription for for choosing your leaders. Listen to this. If only the church today would would, um, take after this. He says, let us choose men who teach us by their lives. Men who teach us what we ought to do and then prove it by their practice. Who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid. Choose as a guide one whom you admire more when you see him act than when you hear him speak. Dude. And no, Paul doesn't just put himself in this category. He doesn't say, you know, I'm the only one who's worthy of imitation. Just do what I do. Don't worry about anyone else. Just me. No, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's he's including anyone who has adopted this gospel mindset and is living it out. Find someone like that and imitate them, he says. But why does he call for imitation here? You know, I think it's because We are always imitating. That's how we are wired. There was a Yale study about 15 years ago that took uh, a group of children ages 3 to 5, and they they put a toy in a clear box with an obviously easy-to-open lid. And so they put it there, and then 
teaching them how to open it, they, they brought some adults along. And the adults would do silly things in the process of opening it. Like, they would take out a feather and tap the box. And then they would, like, do a little drum on the lid. And then say a little incantation and then open it and grab the toy. And then in the process of the experiment, they, they asked the kids, do you think those actions were necessary, the, the feather and, and the saying and the, the tapping on the lid, do you think they needed to do that to get the toy? And the kids were like, no, that's silly. You don't need to do that. And, but then later they said, okay, so you don't need to do any of those silly actions. Just get the toy. You know what the kids did? They imitated the adults still. <laughs> they grabbed the feather, they tapped it, they did the drum, they opened it like they were shown, not like they were taught. You know, that's one study. But it just shows how in our wiring, in our nature, we imitate. We see someone we trust and we respect, and we do what they do. That's how we function. And so for better or worse, as human beings, we imitate. And so since we can't avoid it, Paul says, just embrace it. He says, Christians, capitalize on this by wisely choosing whom you imitate. Curate your influences. Now, we are in the age of curation. You can curate your playlist. You can curate your news. You can curate Anything you want, curate your influences. Find influences that have this gospel mindset and live it out. That's what Paul says here. Why? Well, because you'll end up imitating somebody. And that's when Paul's heart breaks. You know, he says, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul recognizes that when we look around, most of the people you see and could possibly imitate aren't following Jesus. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Who exactly these people are is debated. You know, it could be the Judaizers back in, you know, we learned at the, ver- uh, the early part of this chapter, who were, were Jewish Christians who said, Gentiles, you can be Christians, but first you need to take on these Jewish customs. It could be them. Or it could be non-Christians who are opposed to the gospel, like it seems like chapter 1, verse 28 says. It could be Christians who, who, you know, take the name of Jesus but then don't live it out and just live for their own pleasures and indulgences. We don't really know who these people are. Personally, I think it's probably un- like non-Christian opponents, but we don't know. But notice Paul's heart for these people. He says, I've often told you about them. I but now I'm, I'm, I tell you, even with tears. He warns them with tears. Paul's heart breaks for these people. 
They may be enemies of the cross of Christ, but they're not our enemies. You know, when we look around our city, Seattle, or when you look around your neighborhood, or your context, your, your uh, workplace, and you see people whose minds are clearly only set on their own appetites, does your heart break for them? You know, they are, Paul says, headed for destruction. That's, that's what the end of the line will be for them. Do you care? They think this world and all of its comforts are all there is. Do you long for them to experience the joy and comfort of a world to come? Paul does. He's heartbroken for these people. But isn't this mindset exactly what you'd expect of those who don't think there is a world to come? Minds set on earthly things. Following your appetites. You know, these folks are are simply living the life that Paul actually recommends if there's no world to come. You know, he writes another letter to the Corinthians, some of which don't believe in an afterlife, and this is the advice he gives. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the the worldview he imparts to those who don't believe in a resurrection. If there is nothing after death, then then just live for your appetites. Eat, drink. Tomorrow you're going to die. It'll be the end. Doesn't matter. Life is meaningless, ultimately. And if I'm honest, a lot of times, this is me. A lot of times, the, the concerns of this life feel like they're more real than the things of heaven. And so, I serve my belly. Hence, my need for the cross of Christ. In one, in, in one sense, being an enemy of the cross of Christ is ignoring your need for it. But in that same chapter where Paul recommends this worldview if there's no resurrection, he then lays out the evidence for Christ's resurrection. His actually having been raised from the dead. And so what real world consequences are there if that is true? You know, it means that there is more to life than meets the eye. It means that what Jesus said is most likely true. That we aren't just headed back to the dust. Each of us, Christian or not, is headed somewhere forever. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, that is true. And so that leads us to Paul's last point. If mere citizens of this world who think this world is all there is, are headed for destruction, where are citizens of heaven headed? What is our end? What is our hope? And so that leads us to the third and final point, that gospel citizens are waiting for Christ. 
Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When we're citizens of heaven, it's not the benefits of heaven that excite us, it's who is coming from it. It's who the king of heaven is. That last week we talked about how the gospel is a person. That person is Jesus. He is the king of heaven. He is who we are waiting for. Notice Paul's mention of heaven is extraordinarily brief. The only description of it is is who is coming from it. A savior the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, speculations of, you know, whether or not we'll fly in heaven, if we'll meet our pets there, um, or experience life in any way similar to here. For Paul, that's not the point. The point is Christ. We wait for Christ. And we do it in three ways. Eagerly, loyally, and full of hope. First, we wait for him eagerly. That word await, it doesn't convey in my translation what it actually means. It's eagerly await. We're we're waiting with bated breath. You know, when we uh, tell our daughters that something fun is coming up, such as going to Disneyland or something of that nature, we wait until... Maybe, maybe two days before, but most likely either the day before or the morning of, something in that vein, because of the eagerness. The eagerness can't be contained, and so we have to be careful. We've been, we've been told in advance what is awaiting us. This should cause us to be eager for Jesus to come. You know, when you're waiting for a package that you're excited about, you're constantly checking your phone. Is it here? Has it left, you know, random town in Oregon? Ah, you know. You're constantly waiting for it. And you're not getting, you might, you know, do something for a little bit, but then you're like, oh, I want to check again. You're not getting distracted from it because of the surpassing worth of what you're waiting for. It's always in the back of your mind. And so we wait for Christ eagerly. That's one way. But secondly, we wait for Christ loyally. You know, as if the word citizenship wasn't already political enough, Paul now declares the identity and the title of the ruler of this heavenly kingdom. He says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, remember who most of the Philippians are. They are in a Rome away from Rome. They are in a Roman colony. They're distinguished citizens of Rome from which comes the rule of the Lord and Savior Caesar. You know, we hear in 21st century America, we hear Lord and Savior, and we think of a personal relationship with Jesus whom we've invited into our hearts. No, that is not the image that Paul is giving us here. Paul is giving us a 
politically subversive statement. He says, you know, you might be a citizen of Rome, but more importantly, you're a citizen of heaven. You know, you might be subject to Caesar as Savior and Lord, but more importantly, there is a Savior and a Lord coming from heaven named Jesus Christ. And he wields power that enables him to subject all things to himself, including Rome and Caesar. Paul's, Paul's getting political here. So I might be about to offend a couple people. To wait for Jesus loyally means to elevate his kingdom over your political leanings. Period. It doesn't mean you don't get involved politically. It doesn't mean you can't even have your preferred American political party. But it does mean being willing to speak against your own party if they aren't aligned with the ways of Jesus. And it does mean being willing to back another party's idea on an issue if they are aligned with the ways of Jesus. And let's not forget what the ways of Jesus are. A spirit-empowered, yet cross-shaped love for God and for neighbor. Christians, if embracing the partisan politics of today means you are straying from a spirit-empowered, cross-shaped love for God and neighbor, you need to rethink your priorities. Okay, that's it. So waiting eagerly, waiting loyally, and then finally, waiting full of hope. Why? Because holy cow, look what's coming to us. It says Jesus will come and he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. That word lowly body means body of humiliation. You know, someday, all of us, our bodies are going to look disgusting and dead. Jesus is going to transform that body to be like his body. And when Paul recommends that we set our minds on heavenly things, not earthly things, you know, sometimes we assume he means spiritual things versus physical things. But that's not the case. The heavenly thing that we are waiting for is extremely physical. It says right here, Jesus has a physical body right now. He's got a glorious body, but it's physical. It's not just spiritual. It's real. And it's glorious. It will never die again. It's immortal. And when he comes from heaven, he will take our lowly bodies, the ones that get cancer, the ones that get Alzheimer's, the ones that die in a matter of a few short decades, and he will transform them to be like his body. If that doesn't give you hope, I do not know what will. So we wait for that. We wait eagerly. We wait loyally. We wait full of hope. 
Back in chapter 2, we saw the trajectory of this Lord and Savior. The trajectory of Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity future. He is where everyone is headed. All of us will bow down to Him. All of us will confess Him as Lord of the cosmos. All things, all governments, all authorities, all powers, all people will be subject to Him. But for those of us who have placed the full weight of our lives on Him, we won't cower in fear. Rather, He will powerfully change us to be like Him. That is our future. That's our future as citizens of heaven. Isn't that so much better than any future we could dream up ourselves? Isn't that so much better than living as if this life and our appetites were all there is? And it's not easy. It's not easy, but it is relatively simple to act out our heavenly citizenship. It all revolves around one person. Be excited about Jesus every day. Trust in Jesus to help you become more like him every day. Invest in relationships with people who have Jesus at the center of their lives. Allow your heart to break for those who do not yet have this hope in Jesus. And finally, remember what your end will be. A new, immortal body given to you by Jesus so that you can one day stand face to face with him. The one who emptied himself of everything to die for you, to suffer for you. He's the only one who deserves what's coming to him. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for providing your son to die for us to absorb all of the sin, the brokenness, the wickedness, the evil of the world into his own body to crush him, but was vindicated when you raised him from the dead. I pray that we Christians would see the beauty of our Savior and Lord more and more every day as we wait for him together. I pray that those who do not yet know Christ would begin to rethink a mindset that says this world is all there is. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable and empower us to live a spirit-empowered, unto-cross-shaped living. Laying our lives down for those our hearts break for giving our lives for this city that needs you desperately. But we need wisdom in how to do that. Please help us keep Christ at the center of our attention and our focus and help us to be patient while we eagerly wait. And it's in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.